Hello and welcome to the Talking Mortality podcast, the podcast that looks to explore and examine some of the difficulties and challenges in the practice of modern medicine with a particular focus on the care of patients who might be approaching the end of life. My name is Dr. Calvin Lightbody and I'm an emergency medicine consultant practicing in the United Kingdom National Health Service. Today's episode is called Things Go Better with Planning. We've examined in previous episodes the benefits of open, honest conversations when it comes to discussing the approach of the end of life. And today we'll be looking at putting the content of those conversations into written plans. Plans that are going to make a positive difference at the end of one's life. Planning ahead, I'm sure you'll agree, is a good idea. If you're going on holiday, it generally wouldn't be wise to turn up at the airport with no bags packed and to try and buy a standby ticket of some kind. Some advanced planning would be sensible for this journey. Certainly, you would want to pack a case with the things you might need for your trip and you wouldn't want to overstuff your case with unnecessary, pointless things, nor would you want to travel too light. The same goes for looking ahead and considering the end of life. Things really do go better with planning. Joining me to discuss this today once again is my friend and colleague, Professor Robin Taylor. Robin is a consultant in respiratory medicine and has in recent years been working to develop what are known as anticipatory care plans for hospital patients who might be approaching the end of life. This really helps with planning for the journey ahead unpacking a more appropriate amount in their cases for that journey. So let's uh, let's get started. Uh, Robin, how are you doing? Good to see you today. Good evening. Robin, um, this, this episode just follows on, I think, quite nicely from the, from the previous one when we're talking about prognostic conversations and when we're talking about maybe how do we get that, those conversations now down in, in writing and in some kind of a plan. So maybe we could just start off by just discussing, you could tell me, what, what exactly is an advanced care plan? Well, the clue's in the word advanced. Um, actually, in Scotland, we don't use that term, but um, we'll, we'll use it during this podcast because it's internationally recognised. But the word in Scotland is anticipatory care plan. And to anticipate is to think ahead. And I think in your introduction, you were talking about anticipating a summer holiday and how yeah. we plan for that. Uh, the reason for both anticipation or for advanced care planning is to try to reduce the potential uncertainty that there is about managing future health problems. Um, When people get into a crisis, it's usually worse when they're taken by surprise, when they're having to grapple with things they hadn't expected. But in all honesty, you know, 85%, at least in this country, 85% of people die after having had progressive decline in their health over a one to two year period. Mm -hmm. And so when when you think that, most of our patients are on an end-of-life trajectory before death comes, and sometimes death is preceded by two or three hospital admissions. Being honest with one another and then taking that honesty and making it the foundation for saying, OK, I'm going to look ahead and I'm going to make a plan which reduces uncertainty and therefore reduces the stresses, improves the quality of care that people get. That's the reason for an advanced care plan. OK, so... I guess historically what we've had in terms of an ACP, certainly in the UK, is a DNA CPR form. That's a do not attempt cardiopulmonary resuscitation. 
But I suppose the main limitation of DNA CPR is that it's really just about one treatment, specifically CPR. So there's a whole host and range of investigations, treatments and interventions that can be done up to the point of CPR. So is, is that where an ACP comes in, that's describing everything else that can be done up to that point? Well, the do not resuscitate orders have been around for 40 years. Um, and they deal with a unique situation, namely cardiac or respiratory arrest. Um, in point of fact, if somebody's having a natural death, there'll come the point where they have a cardiac arrest or a respiratory arrest. Um, that model is both good and bad in terms of our understanding of advanced care planning. It's bad insofar as, bizarrely, what you're doing <clears throat> in a, signing a DNA CPR or a DNR order is saying giving a clinician the permission not to treat. Now, it's different for all other interventions when it comes to advanced care plan, major surgery, radiotherapy, chemotherapy, and, and so on. But that's a model. One of the very, I'll, I'll almost use the word unsavoury aspects of DNA CPR is that, um, at least in parts of the UK, in the 80s and the 90s, it was regarded as a sort of code word or a, 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 euphemism. a euphemism for do not intervene and do not treat. Mm. And that's unethical. There's never a moment when in medicine you actually can say there's nothing more can be done. There is always something can be done. It may not be with curative intent, it may be with palliative intent, but there's always something that can be done and usually needs to be done. So an advanced care plan, in contrast to DNA CPR, broadens both what I would want or what I might not want in what is an evolving clinical situation, namely the last one to two years of life. Mm -hmm. So I guess in, in its essence, DNA CPR was to try and prevent the harm that can happen mm -hmm. from a CPR yes. attempt. I, yes. mean, I mean, I'm very familiar with CPR in my background, and CPR, when it's done well can be a brutal, 
procedure. It can yes. involve multiple rib fractures, breaking the breastbone. It, it's a horrible procedure to subject somebody who's having a natural death is. And I guess an ACP broadens, as you say, the, the role of trying to bring in other things that could potentially be harm or be unwanted or, or want, that we want to avoid. Right. Well, in, in actual fact, an advanced care plan sounds like a very simple concept. I'm going to consider my future and I'm going to make choices in collaboration with the clinician. That's what we're essentially doing. But it's complex insofar as what are you trying to achieve? <laughs> An advanced care plan is good for written down for communicating between the patient and a new clinician or an out-of-hours team. An advanced care plan is good for prompting a discussion about things like my will, where I would live, like to be like to die. There are various, there are a whole host of motives and goals that you might seek to serve. But one of the most significant among them, which is probably gets less than adequate airing, is the idea that an advanced care plan is a mechanism for reducing harms. And if you reduce harms, you improve quality of life. And there's a huge amount of harm done. It's well-intentioned. But it's mistaken yeah. in patients for whom an intervention is going to be non-beneficial. So I think one of the great selling points of advanced care planning is that in collaboration with a patient and in anticipation of their future, their prognosis, the context in which they're drawing up their thoughts and their choices and their preferences, you're actually trying to achieve a better quality of life medically speaking, should a patient in the future be admitted to hospital or have an out-of-hours doctor attending okay. to them. So what would you see included in an ACP? What are the components of an ACP? There are different ACPs. Advanced care plans come in lots of shapes and sizes. If it's a fully comprehensive model, then you would be dealing with issues such as uh, the, desire, the preferred place of death, the will, the appointment of powers of attorney, um, the funeral plan and so on. That's anticipating the dying and the death. Probably one of the most, uh, at least in this in this uh, present situation in our society, that one of them would be to address not the place of death, although it may be that, but whether the patient wants to be admitted to hospital in the event of deterioration. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then. You can move on from that into the more detailed evaluation of what interventions would be appropriate or inappropriate. And that's where the dialogue with the patient takes place. It's where you consider the context. You consider the type of treatments the patients had already. Did they work? Were they disagreeable and unacceptable to the patient? Are they worth retrying? Retrying. For example, in a patient with end-stage respiratory disease, you can use non-invasive ventilation when they deteriorate. Well, I can know a number of patients will say, never give me that again for reasons of its mm. the distress that the intervention causes. I can think of some patients who say, that was wonderful, doctor. Make sure I get it next time round. So there's where you individualise it you, you, and you use the context and anticipation of what might lie ahead, some of it's theoretical, some of it's unknown, but you're doing your best to anticipate 
to care for to to drop a plan for what might lie ahead. Okay. It's like going, if we go back to the on holiday analysis anal, analogy. If I go on holiday, I can't guarantee the weather at the other end. So I'll, I'll take um, my beach shorts, but I'm also going to take an umbrella. Well, certainly, if I'm going to the UK, I would do that. Um, <laughs> for sure, you get the point. Yeah. Um, you can't say for certain what's going to unfold, but you can take a reasonable approach at, at um, anticipating what it might be okay. and discussing that with the patient. Sure. So when it comes to the hospital setting, Robin, I know you've done quite a lot of work around anticipatory care plans for the, in the hospital setting, and one of the key things there that you, you've, you've mentioned in the past is establishing what are the goals of care for an individual patient. Could you tell us a bit more about what you mean by goals of care? Well, the goals of care are what you're aiming to achieve by medical interventions. Now, number one could be complete recovery and restoring the patient back to the previous baseline. That might have to be modified and say, well, the goal here is to uh, allow them to recover sufficiently to get home, but recognising that they're on an illness trajectory and they may survive a limited time. Or they may survive, but with the loss of independence... And there are some patients who would say, well, if, if, that, if I'm going to lose my independence, I don't want you to treat me. So the goals of care have to be discussed and agreed. The goal of care may be to provide support and palliation for a life-limiting illness that may last days or weeks by simultaneously avoiding interventions that are either harmful or distressing. You, if possible, provide for dignity and a sort of restfulness. I think approaching death is difficult for every human being, but there is there is a restfulness can be achieved in the context of dying, which is often um, not even considered when we're pushing for high-powered interventions. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I guess you... We know certainly in this country that about half the people who die in Scotland die in an acute hospital like, like the ones we work in. How can making an ACP help try and overcome that fix-it mentality, that curative drive that, that you described there? Uh-huh. <clears throat> when a patient comes in acutely unwell, um, appropriateness as opposed to non-beneficial, appropriate interventions as opposed to non-beneficial interventions should be based on the context. Has the patient been losing ground for months? Have they had two two hospital admissions? The patient's choices. And thirdly, the fact that as patients get weaker and lose ground, the same intervention will achieve less and less, but the harms remain the same. In other words, the risk benefit ratio for a person who's in with we'll just stick with respiratory because I'm a respiratory doctor If the risk benefit ratio for intervention for COPD goes up the risks stay the same the benefits go down over time over a one to two to three year period so if I'm going to try to ensure that in hospital over the next three, five, seven, twelve, fourteen, seventeen days the quality of care is as good as it can be, then I'm going to seek to make, in dialogue with the patient and their family, I'm going to seek, as an ethical obligation on my part, to minimise harms. So having that clear communication at the outset in a clearly laid out way 
helps reduce the the harm that can happen from overtreatment and yes. the harm that can happen from discontinuity of care. Yes. You, you mentioned there uh, about ethical responsibility, and I think it's worth touching upon that for a second. Uh, I've certainly heard some doctors saying things along the lines of it's my ethical duty to keep this patient alive i'm i'm wondering if perhaps there there might be missing the point a little bit that our ethical responsibility surely is to respect the patient's autonomy and but certainly to first do no harm what, well, what do you, what's your take on that i'm going to use the word duty of care the duty of care that is um that becomes mine immediately a patient I'm made responsible for a patient is has got multiple facets. My duty of care is indeed to seek to save life, save this patient's life if at all possible. But simultaneously, I have to bear in mind that if I try to do that and all I achieve is harm, then I've failed in my duty of care. So you have to weigh up risk versus benefit, the patient's autonomy and their choices versus um, what might happen when you genuinely think that that um, they, or perhaps they don't have capacity, when you genuinely think that the intervention is imperative. So I, I think the idea that there's a sort of hierarchy or a, a league table of priorities, I'm not sure that's correct. I think they're they're all there all at once mm-hmm. and I think if particularly in patients who are terminally ill if I intervene because I want the patient to survive and do so knowing, knowing it's last chance medicine knowing that the chances of success are poor if not nil and the patient suffers harm and their death is the dying process is unreasonably prolonged as a result of my intervention then I'm in a very shaky ethical territory. Yeah, so I, I genuinely think that. I think there's more than one dimension to yeah, the ethical considerations yeah. that have to be applied here. But, uh, but if we focus primarily on thinking our ethical duty, first and foremost, is to prolong life, then we risk missing those other priorities. Well, I can... I, yes, that's correct. That's, that's absolutely right. Um, the old Latin words were primum non nocere, first do no harm. Um, I don't know if that appeared directly in the Hippocratic Oath, but it certainly appeared in many of the early treatises about uh, the practice of medicine. Um, we've kind of lost touch with that one. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, I agree. Robin, if there's a if there's a criticism of anticipatory care planning, that might it might be along the lines of what's your evidence? For this, is there clear evidence that this is beneficial for patients? Is it the right thing to do? Well, one would have to say the evidence is, you wouldn't say extensive. In actual fact, it's quite hard to work out what you're going to measure in order to say an ACP works. Um, Perhaps I could cite two papers One is from Melbourne, Australia, published in 2010. And a lady called Karen Dettering and her team showed that if if patients had an ACP, they had something like an 80 to 90% chance that their wishes and preferences for their care would be respected. And they did, it was a controlled study, meaning there was a comparison group. And in the group who didn't have the ACP, 
In similar circumstances, only 30% of these patients had their wishes, end-of-life uh, wishes regarding treatment respected. Hmm. Um, so if you're looking at what's the impact on patient choices, ACPs, if they're applied conscientiously, they work. Um, as you know, we looked at the harms issue, and we showed that uh, in patients who, are, who have an ACP in hospital, a treatment escalation limitation plan, the likelihood of medical harms was between two and threefold higher if you didn't have an, a TELP compared to if you did. That's and that was quite a big study. So um, at least there are evidence that patient choices are improved, harms are reduced, but I mean, there's scope for lots more work on where the quality of care in all its dimensions is affected by having an ACP. Isn't it true to say, though, as well as is, uh, reducing harms from, from the burdensome treatments that mm-hmm. can be subjected on a patient that if you have that conversation, you document the ACP, it's also more likely that a patient's palliative care needs will not be overlooked. Yes, well, over the last 40, 50 years, medicine has has very firmly established a sort of binary view of how to how to go about treatment. The binary view is, on the one hand, we do everything possible to... Um, correct the disease process and if we've done everything possible once, twice, three times, four times and it's all failed then eventually we turn to palliative care. That's a binary view. I think that's inappropriate in this day and age and we should have intermediate um, stopping points where appropriateness is the is the watchword. Um, now appropriate means I may go for certain interventions which are designed to correct organ dysfunction but it's also a recognition of the context and the illness trajectory and I may not go the whole hog and I may be willing to introduce palliative care, palliative treatments a lot earlier. In fact, I mean, I'll be honest, palliative treatment in our hospitals is usually a late phenomenon and that it needs to change. Mm-hmm. So I think we need to go for appropriateness and we need to individualise that mm-hmm. and get away from the idea that we, we we attempt to fix and we attempt to fix and we don't fix and then when we've given up on that, then we look at palliative. That's an old model that needs to go. Okay. So I guess this comes back to, you know, think about the holiday analogy. This is yeah. trying to avoid the overstuffed suitcase but also trying to avoid the suitcase that's got not enough in it. Uh, we don't want to travel... Too much, but we don't want to travel too light mm-hmm. either by getting an appropriate <clears throat> an appropriate balance. Just one word on, another word on palliative care. We showed in our study, you'll remember, that um, as one of the outcomes, once a hospital ACP, uh, a hospital ACP uh, treatment escalation limitation plan was initiated, palliative care problems were reduced by about two-thirds. Yeah. So once someone gets into the mindset of using a treatment escalation limitation plan. It's not the plan itself that shapes palliative care in its detail, but the plan is a trigger to start thinking that way yeah. and start thinking about that way out that way much earlier and much more appropriately yeah. than so, we're than we generally do. So it, it wasn't just moving things away from a curative approach; it was changing a mindset and perhaps uh, changing a culture on, on how that was approached. And maybe that's just a good time just to talk a bit more about culture because I think we'd both agree that 
an ACP or whatever form we're talking about on its own is not enough. We need to, to change the culture yes. in our hospitals and in, in, the, in the practice that's happening for patients approaching the end of life. How do you think we can work more to try and get that culture the norm, that, that it's more established? Well, in the last three years, I've been doing quite a considerable amount of coaching of consultants on a one-to-one basis. And if I deal with just the medical culture, but it's not just a medical culture, it's a societal issue. But among medics, we have, there's a, a variety of almost, of, of uh, drivers within our thinking, which we're almost unaware of, which lead us to intervene rather than not intervene. Risk aversion is one, uh, but the other is, well, I read a fantastic paper in the New England Journal six months ago, and it showed that giving rhubarb to patients with interstitial lung disease was going to work. So I give all my patients rhubarb, and that's that sort of information bias. Because mm-hmm. I, I thought, oh, wow, well, we're going to do that. So there are a lot of what we call cognitive biases, but they tend to favour intervention irrespective of whether that's going to be beneficial or not and I think awareness of our biases awareness of how our training has taught us to think this way there's a lot we've got to shed as individual clinicians in order to be making appropriate decisions in difficult cases rather than um, quote unquote fix it decisions I'm not against fixing it but I'm against trying to fix it when it's That's manifestly not going to not work, or even worse, it's against the patient's preference. Yeah, sure. So you, you've done a lot of work to try and, and change and improve that culture, yes. but the same clinicians that you're talking about, I guess many of them wouldn't choose those escalations for themselves. Is that fair to say? Oh, well, you see, that's one of the most fascinating uh, things. There are increasing evidence that... that what I consider, what many senior clinicians consider as appropriate treatment for themselves in a particular situation are not actually what they deliver to patients. Yeah. And there's a much more conservative mindset concerning the management of myself among clinicians than there is about the management of patients who come in as acute emergencies. Mm. And perhaps if the two were equalised, there wouldn't be such epidemic of treatment overuse. Excellent. Robin, I think we've covered everything that I, that I wanted to go through this this discussion. So, really, just want to appreciate. Uh, thank you for your time today. Much thank appreciated. You. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, so let's spend a moment just to recap some of our discussion there. If we are to liken a patient's journey at the end of life to going on a trip somewhere, a degree of planning for this trip would be a good idea. We want to try and ensure that the case that's packed for this journey is neither overstuffed nor left too empty, but is packed appropriately and in according with its owner's wishes. Documenting these wishes in the context of an open, realistic conversation about illness trajectory is the essence of an anticipatory care plan. An ACP makes it more likely that a patient's wishes or preferences will be respected, while reducing the chance that they will be subjected to futile, burdensome, maybe harmful or unwanted treatments or interventions. Clinicians have an ethical responsibility to preserve life where this is possible 
But this ethical duty or duty of care also extends into respecting a patient's wishes and avoiding doing harm. Our approach to care at the end of life should be mindful of this. I'd hope in time that the fix-it culture in our health service these days evolves into a more empathetic and realistic culture. Better communication is the key to making this happen. So that's it. I hope you've enjoyed listening to the Talking Mortality podcast. It would be great if you could leave a review or comments or feedback on this podcast or any of the other previous episodes, maybe on Twitter to myself at CJBlue72 underscore or indeed to Robin Taylor at RT Lungs. Many thanks and have a good day.